This is the pantomime portion of the show. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in. If you can't see the pictures, then your podcast may be broken. We've decided to add interpretive movement to the podcast, but unfortunately, we didn't think this one all the way through. Nathan, you are, I didn't realize, I mean, I guess I'm not surprised exactly, but you are an exquisite dancer. It's all my formal clowning training. Ah. My name is Nathan Pletta. I'm a game designer, self-publisher, and graphic artist. My name is Will Hindmarch. I'm a writer, narrative designer, graphic designer, and game designer. What are we talking about on the Design Games podcast this week, Will? This time we are revisiting how we approach a new game design and how we get it going. Let's say that I am somebody who's who's played some games, mm-hmm. but I don't... But I'll I, pretend. Okay. But I'm designing one for the first time. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's important for a designer, or at what stage, I guess, is it important for a designer to worry about kind of where they are relative to what exists, to try to, to try to put themselves on the map? And I don't mean that in a sociocultural way, in the way, sense of, you know, well, you really put, boy, golly, kid, you really put movies on the map. But what I mean is, mm-hmm. like, for example, sometimes we worry about this in the elevator pitch. It's like OSR meets fate or something. Uh, and sometimes it's helpful just because it gets you playtesters or it gets you it gets people to understand what you're talking about. But when you're talking about en- gateway into a game, what about the gateway into a game that doesn't exist yet? When you're creating mm-hmm. it, right, the gateway that the, that the designer has into this new space and the fact that what where they enter that game influences how the game then enters the hobby. So there's two schools of thought about this that I'm sure people are familiar with. And one is if you want to do a thing, find out everything you can about the thing. Right. The more informed you are, the more examples you have, the more prior art you have to draw on, then the better you are able to construct what you're doing and the less reinvention of the wheel you have to do. Right. And the other one is if you want to do a thing, do what feels right and don't worry about all the other stuff because you can actually swerve your own creative process Mm -hmm. by getting too wrapped up in what other people have already done. Right. Right. I think that, first of all, neither of those are absolute positions, right? Like we're all in a space where you do a little bit of both. Um, there's some things that you have no control over absorbing. So you're not going to be a complete. I suspect that no one is going to design a game who's, who literally knows nothing about games, like anything. Like, like I don't even know what a role-playing game is. I'm going to design one. Vanishingly small number of people, I would say, going to do that. On the other hand, you can't absorb everything that's out there. So for me... And this varies depending on the project for me at this stage, but I guess as a general piece of, of, of approach, what, you, what, what I think is important is holding on to that, that initial impulse, that initial vision of, I'm going to design this game. What do you want to get out of it, right? Like, what do you want the game to do? Some stuff in your world is going to make you forget about that and maybe map over it with someone else's picture, mm-hmm. right? And that's what you want to avoid. So there's there's the the portion of it that's the impulse, the impulse to create. Right. And then there's the portion that's the what, like what are you actually making? And keeping those two things like near and dear to your heart, I think, is what will end up enabling you to balance how much of other people's stuff and what space on the map Mm -hmm. you end up creating. Because when you're telling people about your game or about your project or about your, your, your idea, even before it's a game or whatever, you're telling them that scene in your mind. Or you should be, I would argue. The way that people trip themselves up when trying to explain their game, in my experience, is like, here's the mechanics that I'm thinking about. 
and that almost never actually tells me anything about their game, right? right? Um, Interesting. I think we've talked about this before, where it's like, don't tell me that it's a GM-less, narrative-heavy, uh, D6-based, semi-competitive game. Tell me that it's a game about, um, it, it, it's a game where you're all trapped in a room and you have to murder each other to get out. One of those tells me nothing, and the other one tells me everything, basically. Right, right. right. I, and, and we've seen what happens when, when games come out with the mixture between the new, I don't want to say innovative, because that's such a loaded thing in, in games, and, but, but it's kind of a, but with the thing that it, it's vision mm-hmm. versus its adherence to prescription form, which is to say, when somebody says, like, it's D&D, but I changed out the skill system. It's D&D, but I made all new classes. Or it's Shadowrun, but it's the Old West. Whatever it is, right? Some of those could there could be great games in there, but if it literally is just, oh, I see. So you literally just change the skill list, mm-hmm. right? That's too much one direction and not enough the other direction. It's too much of this is what games look like, so I made that. Right. But I always wished that there was a, a skill for accounting, so I put it in there. I mean, that's the the core of the the idea about the Heartbreaker game, right? Right. That you 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 have this great idea for a game, and you only know D and D or whatever. You only know Shadowrun, or you only know. World of Darkness. So you make a D&D with some some tweaks and changes that get kind of towards the cool thing that you had in mind. But the cool thing you had in mind either isn't actually there for other people or it's not served well by the rest of the game or whatever. And it's mm-hmm. like, just build the game around the cool thing and don't worry about the D&D part is the, the general feedback that I try to give people. I mean, there's a lot of... Uh, when, when, when the only... RPG you've played is any one RPG. Pick any one RPG, whether mm-hmm. it's Fiasco, whatever it is. If you've only played that one and you're, you don't know what is or isn't stock or standard or, or definitive of the form yet, mm-hmm. because to you, Traveler is the entire universe of RPGs. Every RPG is like Traveler, so when I change just this one thing, it's like making a version of poker where I just ch- I, I swapped out, I took all the sevens out or mm-hmm. something, you know, whatever, where you're like, okay, so... Yeah, sevens I, are the high card in my sevens poker. Sevens are the high card in my poker. Um, but where, where you don't know, this is one of the areas to me where, and I, 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 I vie constantly with how much knowledge of, of the space is necessary versus mm-hmm. how much invention of the space is necessary. That's a profound thing that passing through that barrier in, is how you've entered into design in some ways is, is, is finding that mixture. Mm-hmm. But you don't settle on that mixture until like you go into layout. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Because you're still always where you go, well, you know what? I think I can, I think my game doesn't need drowning rules. I can, I can mm-hmm. take those out and we can just settle it some other way or whatever. I don't need falling rules or whatever. I don't, nobody's going to Or climb this game there. really needs falling rules. And I saw some awesome falling rules in this game I played at a convention. Right. Right. I, or this game even just convinced me that, you know, whatever, I can do falling rules in three paragraphs. It's worth it. Yeah. yeah whatever. Yeah. And so with those kind of relationships, mm-hmm. as that stuff continues to change, finding that mixture is an ongoing process of design. Yeah. But then, if, I mean, if that's the case, at what point do, does Vision need to absorb the notion of what your game is going to c- contribute to the conversation? I think th- a perfectly valid reason to design a game is I want to prove that this can be done in a role-playing game. I think that is just as valid as I have this amazing fantasy world that I want to share with people, or I figured out how to do these amazing tricks with D10s, right. and here is an entire system that that does them and now use it in your game it, that that has some other setting or or whatever right right i don't think it's necessary just like i don't think either of those other things is necessary i do think that at a certain point in the arc of your career as a designer there's a time when that starts to matter to you more or maybe you decide that that's not what you care about but i think that question will come up mm-hmm. 
I think forcing it is probably counterproductive. Like if you're literally working on your first game, I would say make it the best game you can make it. And it doesn't matter if it's... It will say something. Yeah, it's going to say something because it's you and you're a unique person and you have a unique voice. Are you going to change the world with your with your game? Probably not. Are you going to change the direction of role-playing? Probably not. And if you if you want to do that with your game, that's a that's a high bar. It's not that it can't be done, but it's also that nobody nobody in their first design out is the best designer they're going to be yet almost almost never. Right. I, I mean as it is when somebody's first movie can be most beloved, mm-hmm. but it's not necessarily the most competently made mm-hmm. or the f- person's first novel. And a, a lot of that in, in novels or in movies more so I think than in games the 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 decisions that the, or the mistakes that get made are not visible. Uh, in fact actually here's a topical example which is that um George Lucas didn't consider Star Wars finished. He's, he was not a fan of the theatrical release of Star Wars, as I understand it. To what extent that's true, whatever. But the point is that he sought out the special editions and made the special editions and so forth and has referred to Star Wars in interviews as an unfinished film. People love that movie. They, don't, they didn't see all the stuff that he, didn't, that he didn't get to realize. Right. Right? He is always seeing it, or let, let's say, but it's a work of his that he, that he sees differently than the audience does. So your first game out, because it's, you know, it wasn't his first movie, but it was a first movie of a type. And... Uh, uh, there are doubtless where somebody said, hey, we can do it this way, we can do it that way, and we can't afford to do it that way, so we're going to do it this way. And he wishes they had done it that way. I think in film, in novels, in, 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 in sort of stationary, repeatable media, things that are the same every time you put them in the, in the laser disc player, whatever it is, those decisions are static once they are made, right? Even if they're made in a very fluid or chaotic space. In a game where we are operating the machinery in a way that we are not when we sit in the audience, mm-hmm. where the machinery is operated for us, I feel like we get a little bit more exposure to what is and is not completely either finished or it's harder to hide mm-hmm. and intentionally or otherwise a, a decision that is either volatile or erroneous or that is going to mislead one of the participants in the in the in the performance of the of the material which is to say the players mm-hmm. even though an early game may be beloved mm-hmm. I think it's easier to see how a game a later game or a more sometimes expertly, sometimes confidently, uh, sometimes just done through experience or whatever it is, mm-hmm. that you learn to make different mistakes. Right. Well, so your later games are... So this is one of the reasons why I, of, I often encourage people that to take not necessarily the, have the, the game that they have the strongest vision for is not necessarily the one you want to make first. I really do think that, that early designers are, benefit from checking carefully before they make the game they've always wanted to make as their first game. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, sometimes sometimes it's absolutely right, and you're completely primed for it. But right. the thing is, there's an assumption that this is the game I've always wanted. This is the thing I'm going to start with, mm-hmm. and I think that as a verified, checked fact, it's completely legitimate. As an assumption, I think it's terrifically dangerous to one's self-esteem and career. I think it's it, it gets back to the the white whale thing, where I feel like I've seen more people start working on the game that they've always wanted. And then get frustrated because it's not coming together. Right. And right. then design a different game and then come back to the first game. Right. Then just plow ahead with that first that first idea and, and it ends up being perfect. And I, I feel like that's true now and that it wasn't necessarily true when I, when I started getting sure. and giving that advice. Yeah. <laughs> Mostly when I started getting it because mm-hmm. it doesn't originate with me, obviously. But is that because, I mean, one, that to me, that's a form of checking is where you start making a game and you go, the, I, you put down all these notes and stuff and you start, you feel like you've started, that the, you've fired the starter pistol and, and at your house, you have started design on a new game. Mm-hmm. And then two weeks or two months into it, you go, oh man. And then later you go, 
oh man, I don't know <laughs> what I'm doing or whatever mm-hmm. it is. And you realize that that's when you do the check and you say, you know, I've got a great sword fighting mini game in here. What if I just do that mm-hmm. first and make a little game about sword fighting and then I make a big, bigger game when I know what the hell I'm doing? Yeah. That's a form of the check to me, of, of, of validating really mm-hmm. the, the notion. Um, it's just that it could take a horrendously long time to do. One other thing I wanted to mention was another kind of continuum, if you will, uh, or scale of approach yeah. between the inspiration for your game. We've been talking about it a lot as, as kind of the positive inspiration, right? Like I did this or I saw this or I put these two things together in my head or I had a dream or whatever and I had this vision for a game and now I want to make it happen. But there's also a another direction where you ha- you, you play something or see something or, or start working on something and it's not right. You know, you do it and, and you're like, this experience was not what I wanted out of it. I wanted X experience and that's what I thought I was going to get. But I got Y experience and Y experience was not good for me. You mean when like playing something that already exists? Yeah, yeah, yeah. often. I think it can come, I think in our field, that's usually where it comes from. Like I can see it coming from seeing a movie or something and being like, oh, sure, yeah. you know, I wanted Star Wars to be street level, urban, gritty crime drama. Right. But it wasn't. So now I'm going to make a game that's Star Wars, but a street level, gritty, urban crime, crime drama. Like. Right. That would be cool. But yeah, I think most often with us, it happens when you play a game and go, oh, I thought I was going to get a crime drama, but this was a, a, a rip-roaring adventure tale, right? Um, but the reason you played that game in the first place was some some element, some some promise of the play experience, and then it wasn't satisfied. So now you're going to make the game that does satisfy it. Now you found a space right. that you realize could be could played be filled. in. Could right. Be, yeah, yeah. And sometimes the way you approach that is you take the experience you had and you say, all right, what do I have to get rid of out of this? And that can literally be, you know, maybe this starts as a, as a you know, as a hack, right, for whatever value that that means for you, uh, where you're just like, all right, we're going to use Star Wars Saga, but we're just going to change the setting and change the name of some of the skills and something like that. But it might also be like, all right, the, this game promised me this experience. How do I get that experience? What aspects of, it, of this do I keep? That are the, the the parts that are that are helpful and productive, and what parts of this do I need to replace mm-hmm. in order to get the experience that I thought I was promised? Because a lot of great games come out of being, you know, dissatisfied with the game you're playing. I think that's no 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 secret. Yeah, I, and dissatisfied is a great is the right word, right? Because it's not necessarily a, if you're playing a game about insomniac race car drivers, that could be a great game about insomniac race car drivers, but it's still not your fighter pilot game, right? So, yeah, it's not necessarily a judgment on the game you were playing. Yeah. But it, because that's very often where that comes from is that notion that, I mean, like you say, is that you're, you're like, oh, yeah, I was hoping it would be more like this other thing. Mm. And it's not my fault that this person didn't read my mind in the future and make this thing in the past. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, nobody, it's not their fault. Yeah. It's not their fault that they, that they made the game they wanted. Right. Right. Um, I think a sufficiently mature person is able to separate, um, you know, with the, the designer intent from your play experience and in that regard when it's like, no, we played it pretty sure we did it right i didn't not like it i just thought i was going to get x and i got y and now i really want y or rather now i really want x so yeah how do i get it and i think it's worth uh, noting that that in that process where you're taking things out and putting new things in or changing stuff out that's a temporal process that's an ongoing process during the design because it's not mm-hmm. like you can immediately at the beginning say i'm just going to strip away everything that's not 
the insomniac rules, mm-hmm. right? That's not necessarily the smartest way to do it. What you might do is strip away, pick one thing and go, well, I know I don't need this whole thing about courtroom drama. And that since that frees up some space or that has this, this reward cycle kind of dangling now, mm-hmm. I can either cut the strip that out or I can add something onto it to pay off that cycle or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But so that doing it almost step by step, instead of rushing to an, an assumption that, you know, I mean, you can start by just taking a single mechanism out and saying, this is what my game will build, will grow from this seed. Right. But you start off by saying, okay, so I know I'm going to need, you know, whatever, mm. emergency room Here, systems. I'm going to need right. the following mechanisms. So this is what I, mm. I put them in. I could take yeah. out. Here are all the things that I really responded to in play. Yeah. But they didn't turn into the thing I wanted. Yeah. So how do you take the things that you responded to and rework them so they do turn into the thing you want? Yeah. Even though you might not find out until you're, you know, version 0.4 right. as a, that, that you still have more stuff in there that you than you needed, mm-hmm. that you can keep stripping or you can keep re-adding or whatever it is, yeah. Yep. What are some other ways that people can can get into their, their design process? What are some other vectors or motivations or... Or, or I think uh, uh, specific mm-hmm. material practices. Yeah. To me, one of the, the things is I find the games that I know are direct inspirations, whether, mm-hmm. whether they are cosmetically or not you know if it's like well this game but I, I don't want it to be about pirates i want it to be about astronauts okay great so you get these games whether they're board games or card games or the the the, the manual for a video game or whatever it is um and this is this sounds so this sounds so shallow this sounds sounds very flimsy but i find it very effective for me is i get as many of them as i can together and i put them out on a table together or often if it's like board games and card games if i just put out a couple of cards or the rules or whatever either in my notebook or just in my head, depending on what it is, but I look at them all in the same place rather than looking at them one at a time. And I say, you know, what? where are the points of contact? How do I want to arrange them? Like, how do I think about them? I essentially mind map them on the table um, while I've got all the visuals or whatever I've got present. And it's always, it's never going to be everything because there's going to be stuff that I didn't realize was inspiring me, but I'll realize, for example, oh, you know what I didn't put on this table? Or maybe surprised to find out, oh, you know what I did? I just left on the table and it's absolutely right. These kinds of things. Um, just because it helps me turn what is sometimes the soupy, smoky morass of inspiration into a list or into a map or into a, a, a space that I can then picture on the table and say, you know what I should, if, if I had an infinite amount of table space, I would also put my Warhammer 40K army on here, but mm-hmm. I can't. And then you decide, what do I have room for? And what do I not have room for? And it's sort of, so essentially mind mapping, but I literally do it with, with, with as, as physical representation of the inspirations mm-hmm. as I can do. And I do that less and less, but I used to do it a lot and I find it very effective. I do it with, I mean, research books, I do it with all kinds of stuff. People who don't do like analog writing or note taking or sketching mm-hmm. as a regular part of the routine, try it out because you'd be surprised how effectively, you know, using your, your hands yeah. makes your brain work. Yeah. It's basically, that's basically all it is. Like there, are, and there's tons of different methods. There's tons of different ways that, that people advise you to go about this kind of thing. I mean, for me, I'll... Just take a, I just take sheets of online paper and just start doing either like mind maps or concept maps, or I just write words in boxes and I draw arrows and scrawl notes. And none of that ever makes its way into a document that anyone else can see or Mm -hmm. read, or even just making, making lists on paper where I can draw arrows to stuff as opposed to an award processor. Sounds super basic and it's, and you can get a lot of conceptual work done in a very short amount of time if you use your hands as opposed to if you type. Right. And if, you, yeah, to me, the, the magic of that is in part is the ability to to write between lines or off to the right or off to the, mm-hmm. you know, it's just the, the analog nature of it, the, the, the sheer openness of it. 
where I, cause I tried for a long time to just use, to just use like Scrivener and Evernote and stuff and to, to be less paper driven, mm-hmm. but I'm very paper driven. And so like in practice, what I do is I have, a, I have a general design notebook, which is for all design, mm-hmm. whether, I mean, it includes graphic design, it includes narrative design, it includes game design. And then I have an individual notebook and sometimes it's a big, a full size, like seven by 10 Moleskine or a Moleskine or sometimes it's a giant, uh, a thick, but you know, shorter, smaller little pocketbook or whatever it is. And uh, those go project to project. And if I don't fill it up, I don't fill it up. No big deal. Yeah. I just tell myself that doesn't matter. I paid. So I paid for 10 pages. I paid for 10 pages. Mm. That's all I needed. And then the game is done or it's not done or it's abandoned or it goes in the shelf for 10 years. And then I pull it down when I pull out the idea and I know where it is. And part of that is the beauty, like you say, the fact that it's not somewhere that no, it's never going to see print in this format. That's for me. Right. And being able to externalize without having to be on stage mm. is wildly valuable to mm. me. Uh, so yeah, I agree completely. And that's uh that ability to suddenly draw lines off to one side or uh, uh, also I find, for example, book darts and paper clips are actually super yeah. great for doing things like, yeah. Yeah. I also, yeah, I also use those little um, colored uh, tabby, little sticky tabs yeah. of different colors uh, to mark up books because I don't really write in books, but um, using those because I can leave those in books for a year and that's fine. And then I can go back to it and be like, oh, right. That's why I marked that page. Right. Very helpful. Uh, I also, for what it's worth, one of the very first things that I do, and I often, I have, I have these for more than I have things that are ever going to be designed. They come and go, but I make playlists for everything. Mm-hmm. And I say that not necessarily because I think it's a, a great idea, but because it, it is again an example of telling me, it's my way of figuring out part of that scene that is going to happen. Mm-hmm. To me is like, okay, so it's interesting. I learned that this movie score belongs in here, but that movie score does not because, because what I'm going for is something that feels like the sequel to mm-hmm. that feels more like blade two than blade one or whatever right. it is. Yeah. I have a very, I have very specific projects that I have that I listen to certain music for and then everything else I don't. It's very, right. It's very project by project for me, but yeah, I mean some, some people that's the, cause your inspiration for your game is almost never just going to be from other games, right? Mm -hmm. It's going to be movies. It's going to be music. It's going to be something you read. It's going to be a thought you have in the shower, um, all that stuff. So, you know, those are all influences that are worth mapping in with your game influences. Yeah. Sometimes I'll get as fiddly as making like a vocab without doing a a glossary, but just a list of terms that I realize, like, for example, in in dark, it's not engineering, it's engineering. And engineering is a real word, but we don't use it anymore. But that's one of those anchor words that I go, okay, so um, some of these words are going to be old-timey. Mm-hmm. Things like that where I just decide, um, and there used to be more of them. Uh, I mean, Fellowship is kind of a, a connotation of, uh, because of Fellowship of the Ring and mm-hmm. because of Warhammer and stuff, that it's a kind of not super modern word, mm-hmm. but a little bit. But so pieces of jargon, either whether they're going to be game terms or not, that I think I want in there is one of those things I put down in the notebook. Mm-hmm. And sometimes those come from a, from a variety of different games where I say, uh, I want to use the word factor as a person. This is mm-hmm. my factor, or I, you know, and that's one I know a, a designer actually wrestled with, and then his publisher didn't let him use it because people don't know what that means mm-hmm. apparently, and I don't know how I feel about that. But, uh, but, but those kind of jargon, and then that list will grow and shrink, and you'll cut stuff off and all kinds of stuff. But it, it that that in a way is almost like filling the bucket with Legos again to me. Mm-hmm. Is that I go great, so I know that I have all these cool terms, often too many of them, but that I have access to them and I know where they are and they're in my head, and I can just go to the notebook and, and discover weeks later, mm-hmm. oh, I had a cool idea about this. Mm-hmm you know, in April that I forgot about or whatever. So you have this idea in your head for the game. You have this this vision of some type for the Insomniac Fighter Pilot game. Right. Right. And maybe you literally have an image in your 
in your mind, a, a scene or a, in a, or a dialogue or a dogfight or whatever. How do you use that to actually do design work? One of the very first steps to me that is, that is, that is effective, um, although it is always wrong <laughs> in its execution, but not in its philosophy, is I write an example of play. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean it like I don't do it as, I mean, I do it as prose, but I don't do it as like fiction. And I don't do it as a script or anything, but I might do, well, I might do it almost like a play. Like you see examples of play sometimes, especially nowadays, actual play reports and stuff. Mm-hmm. Where I pick three or four fake NPCs or fake PCs and I give them alphabetical names. And then I give their characters alf- names that start with the same letter. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, uh, uh, Annie, Bruce, Cecil, and Douglas or whatever it is. And they play. And that makes me think of things that I want to do. And things, and I try to do it. I try to make it as short a thing as possible. Hmm. So I do an encounter or a scene or a, just an establishment or whatever it is. And, and that helps me find questions that I'm going to have to answer clearly immediately somebody's going to want to find out what happens if they try to eject right and i go well i thought this game might be set in like world war one so you Mm -hmm. die okay great so now i have to make sure that there's a way for players to not necessarily just to not die at the same rate that world war one air (laughs) Air force pilots die right or right or then do you make that a big dramatic choice like all right you can always eject it means your character will die and what else do you need to to have to make that a dramatic choice and not a right obviously no one's ever going to eject Right. Yeah, that's a great point. What about you? How do you do it? I definitely do do the example of play thing, but usually later when I have a little more idea of what some of the mechanics might be, because that helps me. I often think through more or less procedurally, depending on the idea and kind of my approach to the particular project. If this scene is to happen, what needs to have been established by this point in the game? Uh, What are all the, the... inputs right Mm -hmm. like we've kind of talked about inputs and outputs before so what are all the inputs into the character decisions that are going to be made in this scene and what are the outputs that are going to come out of those decisions and those all generally become kind of line items of like so i need to design this this and this and then we have this scene and then this this and this are outcomes that also need to be designed for and how do those connect or do they right for example i've talked about uh masks of the mummy kings before where the like one of the kind of inspirational scenes for that is just the idea of these adventurers being in this tomb and overcoming challenges together and then you know being presented with the opportunity to to put on a new mask and that changes the the abilities they have to continue in the tomb so it's not like a literal cinematic scene in that sense like i you know that doesn't it didn't have a whole lot of details and texture to it but like that's the that's the moment mm-hmm. of inspiration that drove the development of that game. Which is it's interesting, worth noting. I think that it's a it's a very dramatic choice. Even if you didn't have the trappings of a scene around it, right? That choice, that moment is a is a choice. Which mask do I put on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and why does it matter? Right, right. So yeah, so that drives me to like, all right. So there's you know there's a group. Are they all working together or is it competitive? That's a that's a design decision, and I can design around around that once I kind of figure out which of those matters more. They they are making their way through this tomb. So what's the nature of the tomb? Is it established from the outset? Am I designing it and giving it to players? Is it procedurally generated in some way? Is it narratively driven? Um, what are the other priorities that I have for that? It was important to me to be like, okay, this tomb actually can be any map that you have. Like You can download a map from the internet. You can draw yourself a map. You can do it procedurally. You can... Just make it up as you go along, whatever, whatever you want to do with it. But the game needs to 
accommodate any of that because I think it's cool if you're like, I'm going to spend an hour finding a really cool map of a temple or whatever, that, right. you know, and it has some stuff. You're like, okay, these will be the obstacles that they have to overcome. There's this trap here and it has this icon about a bear god. So there's going to be an Egyptian bear god because that's the world we live in, that kind of stuff. So th- so that's like input stuff. And then, and then I'm like, okay, so putting on the mask gives you new abilities. What abilities do the characters need to have? What do they actually need to do? How do they get, how do they enable them to get from room to room? How many masks are there? Mm-hmm. How often is this choice going to occur? Is it going to be, is this the big ultimate decision of the game? Or is this something that paces the game and, you know, gives it a rhythm, which is kind of what I ended up going with. So having that starting point basically gives you a list of questions that you need yeah. to address. Yeah. And addressing the questions is the game design. And that's that's very well said because that's very much what what my example of play is designed to do is to create the, is to help me find questions because otherwise I will design for too many questions. My instinct mm. otherwise is when when asked, for example, what kind of map or what kind of mask, whatever, I'd go, oh well, the game should be able to do both. No, not necessarily, and almost never, right? Like, otherwise, I'm making three games at once mm-hmm. or whatever it is. But yeah, so finding those questions so that you know, so that one knows what we're designing for and what we're not designing for. What, what this game does and does not need to do. I just find that it, it, it caused me to think of things that are likely to come up that if I sit down and do my dream game, I, I, I will also very quickly just, if I just, when I do my initial list, I'll be like, oh, and this game isn't about, there's, I, don't, I don't need climbing rules because that's not going to come up. Well, I, I don't get to decide that. <laughs> I, I can decide whether or not there are climbing rules, mm-hmm. but. But whether they come up or not. That's too early to say. Right. It may be emergent out of your other decisions. Yeah. But no, I love I love the the orderliness and the the, the input output process of that. I, love I mean, that. that makes it sound a lot more procedural than I think what actually happens for me. Like in reflecting back on that process, I can break it down that way. But you know, I was I was scribbling notes. I was doing a mind map. Mm-hmm. I was did an outline of what the mechanics maybe should be um, based on kind of the length of play that I had in mind, and those all kind of talk to each other. Like those those three points on that triangle all kind of feed into each other, as opposed to it's not like I sat down and like all right here's the idea and then listed out all of those things that kind of that understanding emerge emerges in hindsight. But I think as an exercise that is not the worst thing to try. Like maybe I should do that more often as as a as a formal exercise and see where that takes me. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of our previous episodes, please consider supporting us at Patreon so that we can continue to bring these episodes to you. I am at patreon.com slash wordwill, and Nathan is at patreon.com slash ndpaletta. If you have questions or comments for us about the Design Games Podcast, come check out our Google Plus community. You can just search for Design Games Podcast on Google Plus. There's also a link at designgamespodcast.com. What do people even say at the end of a podcast? What happens if it just...